0: National Geographic Documentary Films and Picturehouse present The Mission, the gripping story of John Chow, the American missionary killed attempting first contact with the indigenous peoples of North Sentinel Island. Hailed by Vanity Fair as one of the best documentaries of the year, a nuanced discussion of religion, pop culture, and colonialism, says IndieWire. The Mission, now playing in select theaters.
1: Hi, I'm John Ridley and I'm Matt Carey and this is Doc Talk, a podcast where each week Matt and I we dig into the critical content being made by some of today's most outstanding documentary filmmakers, storytellers and industry leaders, artists who are literally changing cinema and the world one documentary at a time. Matt, good to see you. How are you?
0: Great to see you. I know uh, one of my favorite documentary filmmakers of all time is Errol Morris. I believe he's one of your favorites as well. We were favored with Errol's presence for our very first podcast where we got into filmmakers like Errol who through their work had helped free wrongly convicted individuals. In the case of Earl with A Thin Blue Line getting uh, a man off of death row. But you also had an opportunity to speak with Errol about his latest film, The Pigeon Tunnel. Yeah,
1: when you talk about Errol being one of, I think, our favorite, and, and and probably one of people's favorite documentary filmmakers, obviously it's it's for the work that he's done, Thin Blue Line, Fog of War, films like that that really sort of excavate um, you know, people and and interesting moments in history. Has changed the language of cinema um, with recreations, although he calls them filmmaking. But to me, what was really interesting about Pigeon Tunnel, I I, I don't want to say it was radically different from some of the other works that he's done, but it really laid into a space about creativity, about the truth and the lives that creators tell. And it's done through the story of an individual named David Cornwell, that most people in the world would know as John LeCary, the amazing. Spy novelist, um, the spy who came in out of the cold, Tinker Taylor, soldier spy, on and on like that. Um, anytime you have an ta- opportunity to speak with someone like Errol Morris, you learn so much about um, specifically documentary filmmaking, but creativity about truths lives, perspectives, and um, and then other stuff. He's <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> the kind of guy you just get other stuff in that conversation as well. It's a great conversation. Uh, it's one we had when the film originally premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival, but I'm so excited to be able to uh, present this conversation now on the eve of his new film, *The Pigeon Tunnel*, being broadcast on Apple TV Plus. Here's my conversation, John Ridley, along with Errol Morris. David Cornwell, who went by the pin name John Le Carre, was a master of the spy genre. Among his best-known works were Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and The Spy Who Came in from the Cold. The latter was adapted into a film by the really great Martin Ritt. And Cornwell is the subject of Oscar-winning filmmaker Errol Morris' latest film, The Pigeon Tunnel. It's an honor and a pleasure to welcome Errol Morris to the show. Sir, welcome.
2: Thank you. I feel more than
1: welcome. Well, it's good to see you. I will say this real quick. We met once years ago. I have no expectation that you would remember. We were on the Dennis Miller Show together. You were quite the gentleman. So I appreciated then, and I appreciate seeing you again. But you know, for people who may not know John LeCarrie, I certainly knew his name. I will be honest with you. I had not read any of his books, and I went back um, this weekend and saw The Spy Who Came in for the Cold which is incredibly powerful. Um, For people who don't know either John Le and certainly don't know uh, David Cornwell, can you just talk a little bit about him and the fact that he had worked in intelligence and um, for the British intelligence, MI5 and MI6, which I guess are the equivalent of FBI and CIA over here.
2: Good God, didn't I just make a movie about this?
1: But, you know, for people who may not know and have wanted an entree into your film...
2: What can I say about... John le Carré, he produced this extraordinary amount of espionage literature. He was fond of contrasting himself with James Bond. Uh, He says at one point in this movie that I just finished that in James Bond, we imagine ourselves as being like James Bond. In le Carré, we thank God we're not like his protagonists. He was a man who, in fact, was a spy. Uh, That makes him an interesting writer and an interesting character for that reason alone. And a person who wrestled with many, many personal demons throughout his life. My movie is in part about those personal demons. And what I would call a struggle with history, of what history means, what espionage means. I've never done an interview quite like this. Uh, at the very, very beginning of the interview, really before we had started, he starts examining, unpacking, if you will, the difference between interrogations and interviews. Is there any difference? Hmm. Well, I'm not sure. I remember being shocked during the interview, and I have thought about it a great deal ever since. What exactly is the difference between an interrogation and an interview?
1: You know, you talked about, and you coming into your interviews, and obviously this has worked very well for you in in your history, that you come in and you you don't know. You don't know what that question is. And you don't know where you're going to begin. And it's an exploration, if I'm understanding correctly, for you of what that subject matter is. So did you feel that there was a difference in this story where... There were many things that were about creativity, about the nature of creativity, about the nature of storytelling that made it more of perhaps not an interrogation or an interview, but a conversation between two individuals who spent their lives
2: searching for variations of truth. Spent their lives searching for something, maybe including truth. When you talk about
1: Cornwell, he seems to be very cynical about the spy business, about the world. He talks about governments inventing the enemies he needs. Some of that comes from, if I understand correctly, the fact that post-World War II in Germany, he saw a lot of individuals who he considered to be Nazis, Kind of walking around and in positions of power
2: that, that we don't have to. We don't have to consider them to be Nazis. They were Nazis. Yeah.
1: Well, I, you know, there was a question posed to you. You know what? And I don't want to go down a pigeon tunnel in this conversation, but I am kind of curious the difference between a Nazi and an ex-Nazi. If was, someone were talking to me, I'm a person of color. Someone that was a confederate, were they always a confederate?
2: You're talking to a Jew here. There is no such thing as an ex-Nazi. So these folks,
1: <laughs> that cynicism then, let That's me ask not you, this is coming from
2: a, its reality? Closer to it than cynicism, if there is a sort of opposition here. I found one of the most shocking things in the pigeon tunnel. So David is a young spy in Bonn in 1960, 61. And he finds out that many of the highest, most important figures in the Bundesrepublik are Nazis. Or if you prefer, I'll use the term you suggested, they were Nazis. They're ex-Nazis. I found it amazing that Hans Globke was one of the highest officials in the new German government, wrote the Nuremberg Laws, okay? The Nuremberg Laws were the beginning the beginnings of the Nazi campaign against the Jews. And if you like, they enabled all of these extraordinary uh, excesses, say genocide, for example, as an extraordinary excess, Uh, they enabled all of this actually to proceed. So um, at the heart of David, it's interesting that you call him cynical, I think he's far less cynical than I am, for example.
1: Well, you've mentioned that. You talk about his, literally, cosmology... And you mentioned that it was an interview, I think you said, your, your cosmology was different than his cosmology, that for you going under the covers, and I say this quoting, just kind of sucking on your thumb and letting the world sort of fall apart around you, that you're cynical enough maybe you don't see a better world. For me, where I'm trying to get with this cynicism is that, you know, James Bond, Dr. Noah's a film was 1962. Spy Who Came In From the Cold was published in 63. This is before the Kennedy assassination, before the major buildup in Vietnam, certainly the Pentagon Papers. We were not a cynical, necessarily, nation at that time. And yet here comes an author with, whether it's cynicism, whether it's a uh, a cold reality. Again, watching the end of the spy who came in from the cold, for me, I mean, I love that stuff. I in terms of, I love film noir, so I love stuff that hews to the real. But If you were going to contextualize, here's an author who's coming with this antidote for James Bond, and people eat it up. Is it the writing? Is it the mood? Is it being something in a different space that allowed audiences to say, this is what we want to see more, or at least read more, than what is coming from a romantic place with James Bond?
2: Well, it's all of the above. Um, Hmm. Obviously, it was something that was extraordinarily timely, Uh, the Berlin Wall going up uh the beginnings of the cold war in a much more violent way there's this underlying tension in all of le carre this part of him is a moralist part of him is a true believer in right and wrong true believer that queen and country were important i think he believed in that idea maybe not the specifics of policy, but believe that our way of life, our way of government, is better than theirs over there. Uh, And this is me speaking today, um, Hmm. much, much, much later, with a feeling of despair about where we are as a country. I find it very, very disturbing, frightening. I'm uh, I'm worried. I don't know how better to put it about us and about where we are. Y- yes, sir. Do you think?
1: Yeah. If in Cornwall's writing, there's a better understanding of hey, there, there are cold realities. There are things that need to be done. they are betrayals. You know, in your film, there's an incredibly personal betrayal. I believe a character named Stanley, who is a friend of his. Yes. Thank you very much. I think it's one of the best parts of the film. It certainly was impactful for me because I don't know, much like the spy who can, and look, I I put this into context because I I look for some, I don't want to say deeper things, but, but these connections, that, the, the character played by Richard Burton says, you know, I have no friends. I have no one. I know There is no one who I would worry about. And there's a moment where there is someone brought into, yeah, you know, it's called a kangaroo court where you realize, oh, there is someone that I care about. And there, there is a betrayal that he can't make, even at the end of the film. Without giving too much away, because it is very powerful, if you can contextualize that moment where he talks about this betrayal that he had to make or felt like he had to make and the reasons why he had to make it and that effect. perhaps it had on it.
2: I would say that uh, John le Carré, David Cornwell, was struggling his entire life with the whole idea of who he was and what beliefs he should have. Mm. It was a very powerful, for me, moment in my film where he talks about the opportunity to meet perhaps the greatest traitor of the 20th century, Kim Philby, in Russia, in the ex-Soviet Union. And He refuses the invitation to meet Philby, even though he's been obsessed with Philby most of his life. Why does he refuse? He says it quite eloquently. I can't imagine myself having dinner with the Queen's representative one night and with the Queen's greatest traitor the night following. On some level, he believed in queen and country, I think there were years and years and years where I believed in our democracy. Mm. I still do, but I'm not sure what our democracy means anymore. It's a frightful, appalling time. And I can't imagine it being worse. I was sitting next to someone from the Telluride Festival on the plane back from Colorado. And he was asking me, well, what do you think was the worst moment in American history recently? Was it Trump or Bush? So I had to think a little bit. Well, let me think about this. Let me see. And I finally said, Bush. And he seemed immensely pleased. He said, well, you're the first person who I've been able to get him to say that, and it's also what I believe. I don't know. There's no war in Iraq or Afghanistan ongoing at the moment. Uh, There's no war in Vietnam, which I demonstrated against as a young student in the 60s. The Trump administration has been not an administration of incredible violence, It's hard when you're talking about calumnies to pick the worst of the, if you like, sorry for the air quotes, the best one. I've just finished another film, or I'm in the process of finishing another film called Separated about the policies of separating families at the southern border, which is something that was a hallmark, if you like, of the Trump administration. In the rogues gallery of what's worth, I don't know, there's a lot of bad stuff out there.
1: There's bad stuff out there, and there is, and I want to bring this around to to your film, but there are conversations in your film about inventing the enemy that we need. We spent many years, again, as a person of color, I think we've invented a lot of enemies, but if you were going to have those conversations about Bush versus Trump, is it fair to say that Bush was embracing created enemies overseas and that Trump— Perhaps the difference is that he's creating, or some may say, that he's creating enemies here at home. And those divisions, even now, when we look at the election that's coming up, um, it's trans folks who are the enemy. It's um, critical race theory that's the enemy. It's LGBTQ+, plus that's the enemy. Well, you know, just, you know,
2: the only thing I want to see outlawed is heterosexuality, because almost all... <laughs> All of our problems derive from heterosexuality. Eliminate that, and everything will be much better.
1: Uh, I, I've got two amazing kids. I don't know if I
2: would <laughs> be completely. I that. have, I have one amazing kid, and I once, who is now thirty-six. When he was thirty-five, I told him I, uh, I believed in abortion up to the age of thirty-five, and he said, "Well, you're not leaving yourself much time, are you?" Can I talk about a slight segue?
1: And I do, I think this is important to talk about because it is very central to Cornwell's story. If we're talking about family and we're talking about parents and things like that, um, his father, Ronnie, is so central to his story. Cornwell describes him in the film, which I kind of like that turn of phrase, not just as a con man, but as a confidence trickster. If you can just a little bit talk about Ronnie was and why, you know, our lives are driven by the hugs we get or the hugs we don't get, but why he was important to Cornwell in this story.
2: Uh, Ronnie, it occurred to me fairly recently, is a Trump-like character. Hmm. Um, When you say confidence man, trickster, let's simplify it. How about compulsive, inveterate liar? And in that sense, of course, he reminds me of uh, our ex-president of the United States. I don't know what it would be like to grow up with a father like that. I grew up without a father. My father died when I was two years old of a massive heart attack. Hmm. I uh, sometimes wish I had had a father. I had an extraordinary mother, thank God. Um, Ronnie was a fantast. He created these imaginary worlds that he lived in. And he also created an incredibly unstable world with mothers' wives leaving in the middle of the night. Uh, He was incarcerated many times during David's childhood. There was a kind of magic to Ronnie, a larger-than-life character, but also an instability and a kind of insanity to it all that obviously infected his young son. I want to get into, I, look, we've all seen well, your work you work on thing. I things. can tell you what I like about the movie. Why not? Because I don't want to just simply but, but, but describe, I don't want to describe Le Carre's life. I made the damn movie. Go see it if you want to learn about it. I can tell you why it interested me.
1: But, uh, okay. Tell me, tell me why it interested you, but I do want to transition to what interested me, which is not just the subject of the film, but how you put this together. But tell me what interested you, because they may, these two questions may dovetail
2: could happen, Um, that he embodied an idea about truth and about history that I agree with. And he said it really quite eloquently. My entire movie comes from this one book, The Pigeon Tunnel, except for one scene, which comes from a novel which I very much like called The Secret Pilgrim. And he's talking about the inmost room. The, the usual Le Caris speech about spies being squalid creatures, amoral, blah, blah, blah. But Smiley is lecturing. Smiley is his central character in Tinker Tailor uh, and in many, many, many other novels. Uh, Smiley is lecturing and says, at the end of all of your excursions and spying, espionage, whatever, you're looking for the inmost room for an explanation of why. Who are we? What does it mean? And it's a very disturbing and dark moment, which I love, where he says, at the end of all of our travels, we come to realize that the inmost room is bare. Hmm. And to me, it conjured up a scene that I very much like from Ibsen's Peer Gint, where Peer Gint is peeling an onion. And as he peels the layers of the onion away, he says, well, man is like this. Another layer comes off. No, man is like that. Another layer comes off. And he keeps going through the onion, layer by layer, until there's nothing left, just a pile of onion shards lying at his feet. And I took it as being deeply existential. Who are we at our core, at our root? Are we anything at all but a set of unending, pathetic delusions? And David interpreted it slightly differently. Uh, It it meant a lot to me. That it was about history. That we love to think that there's rhyme and reason to history. Uh, Twain is famous for saying, maybe there's no reason, but at least history rhymes well, I think he was wrong. There's no rhyme and there is no reason at all. And the one thing that we could talk about and even agree on is that history is chaos, that people are at endless cross-purposes with each other. People are insane, really deeply insane. Rationality is a hope, not a reality. And the history that we experience is a result of just something close to sheer chaos. Um, I made a movie about Steve Bannon with Steve Bannon. Yeah. And I learned an enormous amount. Steve Bannon was infected, I think that's the correct word, with these versions of cyclical history. History just is a kind of motor that it turns a wheel uh, with endless repetitions and recursions, and we had discussed movies: uh, Twelve O'Clock High, uh, the, the Man Who Killed Liberty Valance, and so on and so forth. Henry uh, the Fourth, Part Two, and Henry the Fifth, and we disagreed about the interpretations of these movies, which was. The whole point of doing this is to find out how he saw the world versus how I see the world. And for him, the world is all mechanism. It's all Mm -hmm. conspiracy. It's all patterns that repeat themselves. Hal, he told me, did not betray Falstaff. They were just following the pattern of history. It occurred to me that this is the essence of fascist ideology, that man is a tool of some kind of infernal process and not the author of anything, not the author of history. And how frightening I find those ideas, Uh, how appalling I find them.
0: National Geographic Documentary Films and Picturehouse present the provocative new film The Mission from Emmy-winning directors Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss. The Mission tells the gripping story of John Chow, the young American missionary killed attempting first contact with the indigenous peoples of North Sentinel Island, examining how Chow's youthful thirst for adventure became a fatal obsession. Held by Vanity Fair as one of the best documentaries of the year, a nuanced discussion of religion, pop culture, and colonialism, says IndieWire. Compelling, says The Playlist. Riveting, says Deadline. The Mission, now playing in select theaters.
1: But you, uh, let me ask you a question. You, you say there's no rhyme and there's no reason. To history to the past the things that were going on but there's so much of your career that is about trying to get to something some kind of a truth some kind of understanding you talk about whether it's objective truth or things like that um you have a quote from a favorite film of mine um out of the past robert mitchin talking about you know i'm, I'm in the frame but i need to go in and find the picture. Um, which is active? That's proactive. I'm going to find something. If
2: there is no well, you talked truth
1: there. I, I um, would never say you,
2: such a thing. Do I believe in truth? Yes, I do. Um, hmm. People get hopelessly confused about these issues um, for reasons that are a little obscure to me. I spent three years investigating a murder in Texas. Um, I made a movie, The Thin Blue Lion. I Hmm. used various scenes in order to help the audience understand the underlying issues. And what was the underlying issue? Who killed the cop? This is is a very kind of simple version, if you like. Not that simple, but a a simple, a simpler version of trying to uh, uncover the truth. Because a Dallas officer on a lonely road in West Dallas on a cold night stops a car. The driver uh, puts six bullets in him. He dies on that roadway. Who held the gun? Who pulled the trigger? Who shot the cop? This is not relative. I don't want to hear about Rashomon. Fuck Rashomon. I want to know underlying who shot the cop and someone did it. It's not subjective. It's not up for grabs. It's not something that you can resolve by polling a committee. There's an underlying reality that we all live in and a world we all live in in which things happen. But that's different than talking about you know, whether I think that history is a machine. These are different kinds of questions.
1: There are different kinds of questions, and I don't want to stray too far from um, Pigeon Tunnel, because that is your new film. Um, I I quite enjoyed it. Let me ask you this, and just about uh, Cornwell and creativity. There is a lot in this film that is about the nature of creativity. Um, about the fact that uh, a lot of his search for truth and lies or an understanding of truth based on Ronnie, based on his life, based on um, things that he had to do, that fed into that... I would certainly say that he's an artist. There was a moment in these conversations where he asked you whether or not you thought that he was an artist, and you felt like it wasn't your business to to say whether it it's it's art or whether it wasn't art, and that maybe he was just ultimately looking or maybe afraid of being a huckster like his his father. I am asking you to make a little bit of supposition, but I found the film really powerful in terms of that creativity. Thank when you, you talk about in that room, there's nothing there. You get to that room, there's nothing there. He talked about interviews where He did not necessarily like to give interviews. You mentioned that in your opinion. He gave a hell of a lot of interviews. But it's like being a magician. And if you see that trick up your sleeve, well, there's nothing left. Um, Do you feel like that actually the nature sometimes of being an artist is being a trickster? And having a shtick that goes upon the good and make it great. You know, Banksy, is he a good artist or a great artist? Does he have a little bit of a shtick? In talking to Cornwell, do you feel like maybe that's what elevated him a bit, is having that something that separates him from being just good to being great? There's much that you do in your films that we're certainly, everybody knows how you feel about uh, reenactments. And talking about, oh, here's this thing that people shouldn't have done, shouldn't have done. Well, you made it into a thing. Is it not being a little bit of a trickster sometimes that elevates the good individual from the great artist?
2: Well, first of all, I never call them reenactments or recreations. Mm -hmm. I always thought, well, why in hell am I a documentary filmmaker? It seems, at best, some debased form of filmmaking. Why am I doing this? Um, and the best that I could come up with might not be any good anyway, but the stakes were low enough that I could experiment. <laughs> and I had the luxury every single time I made a film of reinventing how that film could be made. Um I ran afoul of the documentary police very early on in my career because I did things that you weren't supposed to do. Good. Good for you, Errol. Um, I did things that were considered to be uh, illegitimate in terms of documentary filmmaking. Uh, the And I'm going to refrain from using the air quotes because I hate them, but the reenactments and the recreations in The Thin Blue Line uh, were the perfect example of that. Um, but they weren't recreating or reenacting anything. What they were doing is forcing you to examine the nature of the case. Often mm. what you were looking at is clearly told to the audience as being untrue or possibly true, possibly untrue. You have to figure out whether who shot the cop were there one or two people sitting in the car that night? How does the evidence reflect on these various uh, alternatives? Forcing hopefully the audience to entertain the same kinds of questions maybe in a similar, simpler form that I had to entertain while investigating a murder. Um, yeah. Have at it. Uh
1: Let's, if you don't mind, I, I would like to have one more. I don't want to call it a question, but all of us are only as good as our collaborators. One of the collaborators that you work with many times, and certainly on this film, is Philip Glass. Um, just talk about for you working with him, and in particular, what he may have brought to Pigeon Tunnel that was very unique.
2: And Philip is great. I mean, uh, t- truly great. Composer, one of the major composers of our last century, and maybe in, includes this century as well. I um, had been a fan from probably my early 20s. I went to a legendary concert that he had at Town Hall, and when we started editing The Thin Blue Line, I used scratch tracks from Philip Glass, principally a cue called facade and it worked so well so extraordinarily well i kept saying i better find someone who can write like philip glass and then of course there's the obvious conclusion better get philip glass himself and it was very (laughs) difficult he didn't want to look at the movie it took a long time even to get him into a theater where he could watch a rough cut um But the minute he saw it, he agreed to write the music. And he's been a friend and a collaborator for a large part of my life and someone who I vastly admire. We were sitting at his grand piano in the Bowery um, and he was working on what became the central cue for the Thin blue line. And I said to him, you know, the trouble with this music is just not repetitive enough. <laughs> and there was a moment of silence and he looked at me and said, mm, that's a new one. <laughs> Philip has been great. A great collaborator. When he, he wrote the score for the Thin Boo line, he wrote all of these cues and placed them very carefully. Uh, in the cut, and I loved the music, but I didn't like the placement of the music. And at first I thought, what in hell am I going to do? What am I going to do here? And then I started moving the cues around, and we used everything, but not where it was originally intended to be placed. And Philip, I would have to say, I would say to his credit, but of course it's self-serving of me to say this, Philip tolerated me. And we have continued to work together. And he is a kind of fabulous character, fabulous musician, fabulous, you know, guy. I don't have anything
1: else. I appreciate it.
2: Well, I should say one thing about The End of the Pigeon Tunnel. This was all of these arguments about how the movie should be ended. Uh, There are really two ends. There's one where David does talk about when all is said and done, being an artist. And of course he's an artist. Um, You write as much as he did and you write as well as he did. And you're as eloquent as he was. Uh, If that's not art, I'm not sure I know what art is. But he tells a story which I just loved, about Rudolf Hess, who was Hmm. one of the highest officials of the Third Reich, who fled to Scotland, um, pirated a plane, and flew across the North Sea uh, to the United Kingdom at a time when those two countries, Germany and the UK, were very much at war, I've often been fascinated by that trip and clearly David Cornwell was fascinated by it as well. But he tells a story about a safe, Mm. an empty safe, as it turns out, with a hidden pair of trousers. And it's a very powerful, powerful example of we may think we know history, but we may know nothing, that history might be absurd, just think of it. All of these players, basically, if you like, mankind muddled together, making whatever it turns out to be the world. Why wouldn't it be insane? I uh,
1: hesitated to go there because it is the very end of the film, but I will say in two regards, A, that story was amazing also, and I know you don't want to call them reenactments, I would call it a mini-film where you actually create that moment, if I, I'm understanding that, Moment correctly, where you're flying, where he's flying uh, overseas to the UK. I think he misunderstood the Scottish government and where they stood at that time. But you, it's a really wonderful moment that you create. Any chance you will make that film? Because. Wait a minute, didn't I just you, do it that? It's a mini movie within a mini
2: movie. <laughs> I want to see that in all original. Originally. Originally, I had asked Apple to give me a five-part series, and they decided they only wanted a movie. There's enough in the pigeon tunnel and in David Cornwell's life to make a myriad of movies. Does it still interest me? Yeah, it does. Of course it does. I was very lucky to know him, very lucky to make a movie with him. You you two
1: did seem to find... Um, a groove together and a rhythm together. There is a moment towards the end of the film where you say you think that you failed him as, a, as an interrogator, which I found was interesting because his story and the way you two at least seem to arrive to it was, was absolutely remarkable. I will say this in praise. It's a film worth watching for any number of reasons. I really appreciate it for the artistic, but on that Rudolf Hess tip, the individual who reads The Patch Inside the Pants to me is the punchline to life. So watch the film for all kinds of reasons. Thank you very much for your analysis, I agree. If you appreciate that, then I feel like I did my job today as an inquisitor. Mr. Morris, thank you very much. The film is The Pigeon Tunnel, remarkable. I would encourage people to check it out.
2: I hope I haven't been too much of a pain in the ass. Thank you for doing this, it's my great pleasure. Our pleasure for having you, sir, thank you. Thank you.
1: The film is the pigeon tunnel that was the director errol morris and the film will be premiering on apple tv plus um matt i you know, i've had an opportunity to talk to many many people many creative individuals but i every time i hear interviews with errol morris every time i talk to him and i mean this in a very sincere way you never know where his head is at but it generally <laughs> is nexus around um, truth lies, and 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 the stories that we tell ourselves to allow us to function. You know, um, when he when he talks about the things that um, David Cornwell had to do, and the way he had to take the lies that his own father had told him, and sort of create a narrative for himself so that he could create. And embrace some of those lies and things like that. It really made me think about you know, my own perspectives on writing and creativity. And then certainly in your interview, he does it in a way that has true impact when he really broke down the stories of these individuals um, and then found out the truth about this individual Randall Dale Adams and that they're, they're, as people say, there's one side to the story, there's another side to the story, and there's the truth. I think there are few people who have the ability to get to the truth the way... Errol
0: does. Well, I applaud you for your interview because you, you never quite know where Errol is going to go or how he's going to respond. He, he did an yeah. interview recently with the New York Times, and I think the New York Times interviewer was so kind of exasperated. He put a headline on there to the effect of, here's my interview that Errol hated. <laughs> so <laughs> they, I think yours went far more smoothly but you can well, see think, the you know
1: I'll, I'll be honest it, it is I think it's difficult when you you know look I'm I'm looking down and I'm looking up at, at, at someone like Errol, but you know you know the questions that you're going to be asked you know how they're going to be asked and I do think he's a thinker who believes that, you know, once I've done this project, it's out there, the audience will find it or they'll not find it. And he has these, you know, he has these bigger existential questions about truth and lies that he likes to get into. I think if I had any advantage, i have been on the other side of the microphone sometimes and known how to, you know, maybe pivot or go with. Or, you know, that like a politician, he's not necessarily answering the question you asked, but he is answering something. So let's go with that. And let's find that way. Um, but to me, at the end of the day, when you have someone who is a, um, a free thinker, put that in a little bit of quotes, critical thinker, I also always put that in a little bit of quotes, you are going to have someone who ultimately is a very interesting conversation. I think the thing you can undoubtedly say about Errol Morris is he is an interesting conversationalist.
0: Oh, absolutely! And I love that you at the beginning one of your first questions is basically you know asking him to set up the film, which is for the benefit of, of the audience that hasn't seen it. And he's like, "I just made a film about it. Did you did you not see it?" <laughs> I wasn't expecting him to say
1: that, but you know, again, that's but that, right. I have to be honest. That my inner self, every time I get a question, I, my inner <laughs> self reacts very similarly. It's like, okay, we have to start at the gym. You know, it's it's like when you're walking around with your, um, you know, 25 year old kid, um, and somebody says, oh, tell me about your child. And it's like, oh, I don't want to go through 25 years. You know, it takes so long <laughs> to make a film, you're with it every day. Yes, you love it. Yes, it's right there with you. People ask you about it. You're like, oh, can we talk about the 25-year-old? I don't want to talk about the two-year-old. Uh, I'm here with them now." But I, you know, listen to me. It, it it really is. I think one of the things, and I and I've said this before, one of the reasons I really enjoy working on this project, um, our doc talk with you, Matt, is that I do think that you're the individual. You will go in. You will get those facts and figures. You will go and dive as a journalist. <laughs> to get the information that you need. And I'm just, you know, I'm sort of, and again, I say this very carefully. I'm not, I'm not, a, 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 I don't have the lineage, the, the length of career of Errol Morris, but you understand what it's like to be asked questions and you kind of roll with it and say, okay, I know there's some answers I want to get out of you. And we just got to figure out how we're going. <laughs> we're going to get you to understand that I want you to get them. And it, it turned into a conversation that I really enjoyed. And, and um, it was, for anyone who's uh, keeping score, that really was the first conversation that you and I had for Doc Talk. We broke it into a couple of parts because that first part that you did was just so powerful. And then uh, we wanted to save the second part for the premiere of Pigeon Tunnel, Errol's new film. But it's kind of nice to look back on this and see. Um, you and I, we survived it at least this far.
0: Yeah, we have. We've got uh, more than a month. Uh experience between us now on this so we're almost to can call ourselves veteran well you already were a veteran of of podcasting but uh, in terms of us working together and next week we've got another uh, new film to present this is Bobby Wine the People's President which is uh, really one of the most acclaimed films of the year premiered at Sundance and is a documentary about Bobby Wine as a Ugandan pop singer and very popular in this country, and I think throughout many parts of the world, certainly Africa. And he became a politician and dared to run against General Ueri Museveni, who's, for those who don't know, is the dictator has been ruling Uganda for well, over 30 years, really about 37 years. And Bobby Wine took him on at great personal risk. And it's a fascinating documentary that's going to be on our next episode of Doc Talk.
1: Amazing. Looking forward to it. Matt, thank you as always. Appreciate you. Good seeing you. And we'll see you next week.
0: Great. See you then.